0: to get the victory you know we love data kevin harvick's above average performance and what it could come of his age 48 season and what we hope to learn in las vegas but first up really on a serious note we have to offer a happy and healthy recovery to ryan newman david i was watching from home you were still there in daytona to see ryan newman wreck and then also see him walk out of the hospital less than 48 hours later it seems nothing short of a miracle
1: Indeed, I was uh, sitting in the press box above the start finish line. Saw the wreck occur, uh, and and I'll I'll fully admit I quickly uh, looked to see who won the race. It was very close. I looked to see who the scoring pylon uh, named the winner and was trying to follow that, and it didn't really uh, come to for me the severity of the hit, uh, the, the the second hit uh, with Corey Lejoy, uh, until I was able to see it on the jumbotron. Replay and uh, Alan, got to tell you, the the gut instinct was not good, and I think Ryan is incredibly fortunate to uh, be healthy, walking out of Halifax Hospital in Daytona Beach under his own power. That is, that's that's pretty miraculous.
0: Yep. And uh, I think he would probably agree with you. And we all look forward to uh, him being back at the track so we can maybe talk about him on Positive Regression. He's something of a, a statistical and a racing darling, at least for this podcast, knowing what he's capable of and the kind of approach he brings to Roush Fenway. So look forward to having him back. But let's get to it. We'll start off how we always do, David. This is episode 49 of Positive Regression. This is the Shauna Robinson edition. Shauna Robinson, a short but memorable stint in the Cup Series. Again, not so much for the results, but look, let's be real. Partly because she was a woman competing at the highest level of NASCAR racing. David, even in 2020, it's rare and or you know, non-existent that a woman is competing at this level. What should we know about her run in the Cup Series?
1: Yeah. And I mean, the, the cup series run in the 49 car in particular was memorable because she was driving for a female owner and Beth Ann Morgenthau and that bam racing. And, uh, I don't know. It wasn't anything that Shauna accomplished in the cup series, but it was her career trajectory for me. Uh, she was a competitor in the old goodies dash series. It's a non-existent series now, but I'm going to try to make some sense of it. In nineteen eighty nine she won two times in the goodies Dash series, uh, one on the flat four tenth mile Langley Speedway, uh, the other at Myrtle Beach Speedway, a banked half mile track that races similar to how modifieds race at New Hampshire uh, a, a throttle talent necessary in the corners, drafting as a possibility on the straightaways a really fun track, hard place to win, and she finished third in points that year. She would have won the championship in the series if she had won the final race of the season. She ended up finishing fourth in that race, uh, and she was named the series' most popular driver. For our listeners, to put that into perspective of what that means, the Dash series is no longer around, but that iteration compared to today would have wedged in between trucks and the Arca East series in terms of talent, uh, potentially on par. With Arca East right now. The Dash series was meant to be a stepping stone, didn't always work out that way. Uh, names like Robert Huffman, Jimmy Foster, Lyndon Amick, those are the names that come to mind that we eventually saw move into trucks in what became the Xfinity series, but her wins were nothing to overlook. They mattered, and they ultimately helped in earning her rides higher up the development ladder she grew up poor, Alan. She admitted that uh, directly. No family money to go racing, but she networked and she proved her ability and made it to the Cup Series with that pathway. That is now an old school method of getting to the top level. And not only what she did for females in racing, I think her career there wasn't uh, there wasn't much, in my opinion, that was gimmicky about it. It was kind of just getting on up to the Cup Series and the, the tried-and-true method. It's its be noticed, network, and then you'll get your break. Uh, we, we've we bemoaned the lack of scouting in those days, uh, but she took advantage of that. A lot of drivers did, but she earned her way up, and that's uh, there's something to be said for that. A pretty incredible story and kind of an honor to have her as Episode 49 and to be able to talk about her.
0: Absolutely. Good stuff, and like we said, a, a memorable uh, but short run. In the Cup Series, let's look back, David, on Daytona. Before we start hit record on this, we were talking about uh, we were talking about the Daytona 500, and obviously everything that occurred before the end and Ryan Newman's crash. Certainly, uh, that that will be a focus going forward, and something you know everyone needs to focus on. But the race before that is something you and I were breaking down because what we saw. What was a great race, at least from my eyes and watching it, and even though it took a few days (laughs) to get it over with, but it just brought me back to, if you were listening a few episodes ago, we had the privilege of sitting down with Denny Hamlin and Chris Gabehart at Joe Gibbs Racing, and they went over not only their plan, but just the insight and how Denny prepares for something as chaotic of a super speedway race as the Daytona 500. And what we heard was sort of a student of the game. We heard someone who, who uh, does his research and does his preparation, as does the crew chief. David, and you saw that play out and you wrote about that for The Athletic this week. What What stood out about Denny Hamlin's victory, the third Daytona 500 of his career?
1: With respect to ryan newman's accident and i cannot possibly underscore that enough this year's daytona 500 was absolutely fascinating in regards to strategy and more importantly well-executed strategy because we saw it through the field but the master class was what toyota did to to just just work the odds get one car to survive the entire race the decision of the Toyotas to ride around in the back during the first stage, there was a late restart for the end of stage one, and all the Toyotas cruised, didn't mash the gas to ensure that they would avoid any and all accidents on that one lat shootout. Now, was this overkill? Perhaps, but it also guaranteed survival for that second stage. And that, that late restart actually, um, proved opportunistic for them. Prior to that restart, they all pitted, meaning they didn't have to pit during the stage break and they inherited the lead for the start of stage two. That was a brilliant audible by Chris Gabehart, Adam Stevens, all the, the JGR crew chiefs. They can plan for this as a contingency, but there's no guarantee. A caution comes out like this one did. They recognized the opportunity and they took advantage. It was like a cheat code. They worked the odds in stage one, running in the back of the field, avoiding crashes, and they didn't even have to traverse through the field to get to the lead. They were, that's where the probability of being included in a crash skyrockets. They didn't just mitigate risk. They avoided it altogether. JGR playing the odds. Hamlin did this on late restarts, choosing the outside groove on both of the overtime restarts, even though it meant the two Roush Fenway cars could conceivably link up and draft past him. An advantage of 33 percentage points on, on restarts, outside groove to inside groove. In my mind, that supersedes any perceived advantage that the stable mates have, and that, that was the way Joe Gibbs Racing saw it as well. They got that right. After the race, Denny Hamlin talked about his decision to push Ryan Newman. Uh, really it was, it was the tandem draft style, but he talked about doing this so it would isolate both of them from the rest of the field. And that was smart because then Hamlin could slingshot pass him, just work a pass around him any way he saw fit. All avenues were wide open because there weren't any other cars around them. It was, it was a two car show at that point. Uh, now the caution came out and that plan was disrupted, but that was, that was pretty heads up. And as wild as the finish was, Hamlin was there and able to capitalize. And what did he tell us on our podcast two weeks ago? I'm setting myself up to be in contention in the last few laps. Joe Gibbs Racing created a plan Hamlin recognized the areas he could succeed within it and take advantage of what was a very fast race car, and their entire plan was executed pretty flawlessly for a third Daytona 500 win.
0: Yeah, and part of that success was not—I don't want to use the word failing, but it was punting, if you will, on that first stage. I mean, sure. that, that factored into it. Gabe Hart told us that on the podcast, and it's just something I go back to, again, for all— For as chaotic as these races can be, the crapshoot, Kurt Busch called it the roulette wheel after, uh, you know, his wreck that he was involved in. Uh, But there, you know, and for all the data we love to look at here on this podcast, David, there's always seems to be that intangible that someone like Denny Hamlin has. We talked about it when we interviewed him and he called it just his instinct. Something you cannot measure, something that he must just have, you know, instinct about where to go, what lane to take. Uh, who not to, or how careful to be around somebody who may be a blocker or throw quick blocks or be more conservative. And I just remember when they were going into turn three and the Hamlin and I'm sorry, Blaney and Newman blew past Hamlin going into turn three on the final lap. I just believed that this race no was nowhere near over because it's Denny Hamlin, you know, that intangible, that whatever he had, that this wasn't over yet. And, damn it. It wasn't over yet. I mean, he showed us uh, that, you know, there was no panic. There was just the skill and ability that he has developed over his career at these uh, super speedway tracks uh, to get it back. And there was still plenty of time to do it.
1: Yeah. And I mean, just thinking about the race as a whole uh, for me, I think that there was clear strategy through the field. Uh, there, there was it was well executed by uh, by Toyota. Ford's strategy was interesting. Stuart Haas Racing did something similar to JGR in stage two, trailed the lead pack, and to their credit, they ended the race with two cars finishing inside the top six. And I was I was trying to look at the the lap time data earlier today. Uh, Kevin Harvick and Clint Boyer did not mash the gas very much at all during, during this entire race. And I'm going to have to believe that that was intentional and not the potential of the car. Uh, so that was something. And, and look, they, they came away with good finishes. Chevrolet, Alan, zero strategy whatsoever. <laughs> and I believe, I believe that's a, a talking point for Talladega time as to why. After everything that we heard last year, last fall at Talladega, that remember that impromptu Randleau meeting, uh and I'm sorry those stupid comments about the new Corvette. The the Chevrolet teams were scattered in the Daytona 500, the biggest race of the year. They were fending for themselves, and it showed. Uh, I would love to pry into why there were eight separate game plans, and then the fuel mileage difference. For the leaders compared to those in the draft, this new 550 horsepower package is probably kicking in here. But if my math is true, the leader low end would have been able to go 38 and a half laps on a full tank compared to 44 and a half laps for those in the draft and not pulling a line. Had the race come down to something like this, there's a conceivable scenario in which leading could prove a stupid thing to do. And th- I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that. I happen to think that that's a fun wrinkle. We didn't see it in this race, but it's something to think about for down the road at these drafting tracks. And the aesthetics. This is my last note. When Daytona is right, Daytona is oh so pretty. At one point, it was lap 78, second stage, all four Joe Gibbs racing cars, Engaged in a synchronized block moving from the top to the bottom after the bottom groove, uh, the cars in the bottom groove had gained steam perfectly timed. So beautiful. The majority of this race was terrific and really smart. It unfortunately devolved. In the waning laps, even before Ryan Newman's accident, we were seeing big wins. You were tweeting about Connecticut drivers crashing <laughs> and, and that was, that was kind of the Daytona, uh, race that we've, we've come to know. But it, for, for a while, it was an, a very inspiring show of intelligence and savvy. And I enjoyed that part.
0: Absolutely, and a good weekend of racing overall. Uh, Noah Gregson, uh, a really commanding win, uh, a lot of confidence and leadership coming from him. And the second year driver uh, went back and you know earned that win. And then look, I was on pit road Friday night for a really awesome truck race. I got to be honest, uh, Grant Infinger getting a great win, taking it again. That race was lost. I, I really believe Jordan Anderson had that win. Grant Enfinger took it back right before the finish line. Shout out to Jordan Anderson, and a special shout out, David. You wanted to make sure we shout out. Natalie Decker, because she finished fifth, the highest finishing uh, finish. Sorry, get <laughs> my English is bad, but the highest finish ever uh, by a female in Truck Series history. I interviewed her after the uh, after the race for FS1 and pointed out, David, one year ago she crashed on lap one and was on fire. One year later, she's in the top five at Daytona, and uh, it was no fluke. Uh, what you what did you see from a uh, uh, an analytical perspective or an analysis perspective?
1: Yeah, you know, Natalie Decker took a lot of flack for her effort all season long last year, and her crash frequency of 0.79 times per race was indeed the highest in the series. But to her credit, she had a plan, her team had a plan, they executed, and they finished fifth. This is entirely sound logic for a race at Daytona. Alan, do you happen to know who else... Earned no stage points and finished fifth this weekend at Daytona. I don't. Go ahead. Kevin Harvick. Oh, no way. Oh, yeah. So I, <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's our listeners doing any hating on how Natalie <laughs> Decker finished fifth, but, uh, that, that was a fun race, uh, between uh, the, the race to the finish between Enfinger and Jordan Anderson boy Grand Infinger is good at these drafting tracks, and that is that's kind of a showing a want to to win kind of heartbreaking for Jordan Anderson, but he was very happy. In his interview, which I think went viral. That was you. Um, I, that was, that was a lot of fun. And, uh, and Natalie Decker, a worthwhile fifth place finish.
0: Yeah. Jordan Anderson made it easy in that interview. Let me tell you. But yeah, Natalie Decker, 24th and 26th. Those were her finishes in the two stages after starting at the end of the field and ends up fifth. So congrats to her. We'll see what else she can do as we move on to Vegas. Moving on to the next subject. You just mentioned him, David. Kevin Harvick. Kevin Harvick during speed weeks announced, told everybody that he had signed a two-year contract extension that will carry him at least through 2023 at Stuart Haas Racing. This is notable for many reasons. I mean, one, you would think, given his age, that it would be closer to retirement rather than announcing an extension to his racing career, because by the end of this extension, he will be age 48. And we all know through listening to this podcast and through your work, David, that age 39 is when the average driver... Peaks has its has his or her peak production in this sport. Well, our friend Nate Ryan over at NBC asked Kevin Harvick about this very notion. Wrote a really good article about it. And uh, David, for those who didn't read it, I'll share some of the quotes. This is what uh, ca- how Kevin Harvick responded to some of uh, the questions asked of him uh, again about the age peaking at age thirty nine. Kevin Harvick responded, the analytics, that they go off driver averages, right? Well, I like to think of myself as above average, <laughs> you know, said jokingly, but most of the time. A lot of times people forget that this isn't baseball, football, or basketball. Experience in this game matters a lot more than being able to run fast or jump high. Our bodies don't matter as much as they do in other sports. He continued, most of these NASCAR drivers were in their 50s when they quit. It's easier now than it was back then. That's one thing that Dale Jarrett and Rusty Wallace brought up. He had consulted these guys. What difference does it make? As long as you are physically able to do these things at a high level, there's really no reason to just up and quit unless you have some things that are happening at home that you want to be different. As long as that circle of life is balanced, our sport is not like other sports as far as your body is concerned. David, those were his comments in, in relation to being asked about the age 39 peak. Again, at the end of this contract, he would be age 48. I don't want to say Kevin Harvick's not buying it, but he's not. He, I don't think he, he sounds as worried as maybe some others would be if they're really buying into peak production being at age thirty nine. So, give me your initial reaction to to Kevin Harvick. First of all, uh, acknowledging the age thirty nine peak,
1: um, I, I think it's it's fair to say that he's misunderstood what the aging curve represents, and 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 how he misunderstood it is actually pretty popular. But, firstly to commenters who popped up who don't read or completely have misinterpreted what I've written, I wish you good luck in searching for the part where I said he won't compete for wins because I never said that. If the car is right and dominant, uh, of course, he can compete for wins. But what is most often misunderstood about aging curves is the decline phase. Typically, average athletes Have average declines. That makes sense, right? Therefore, above-average athletes have above-average declines for the most part. Harvick's decline phase is going to be insanely productive compared to the decline phase of, say, J.J. Yaley, where Harvick and Stuart Haas will get into trouble is when Harvick is 47 or 48 years old and is as productive as David Reagan at age 37. And sorry, David Reagan, but you're a useful example right now. Is is this viable? Maybe. Like you, you could have a driver in your car that could have that kind of production, but that won't be the kind of production that warrants an 8 to $10 million a year contract. That is when this becomes a problem for the team. Of course, this is relative. If in Harvick's final year, he's being paid $500,000 as opposed to a high seven-figure number, I don't know. Things might be all right. Stuart Haas may actually see a surplus return on its investment. But it's telling to me that Harvick invoked Dale Jarrett in his argument. He consulted him, uh, and he mentioned his career. Dale Jarrett's Cup Series career did not start in earnest until age 30. He didn't score an above-average production rating until age 36, after which he had 14 straight seasons of production that was not only above average, but worthy of Hall of Fame induction. His last season was his age 50 season. He earned below-average production, and then he retired. Folks, Dale Jarrett was one of the greatest statistical anomalies in sports history, period. And Kevin Harvick just saying, I don't know, Dale Jarrett was fine, it worked out for him, is like saying, I don't know, Bob down the street won the Powerball jackpot, why can't I? And it might not be an even-odds analog, but let's put Jarrett's career into proper context is one of the wildest outliers ever. I don't think Harvick fully comprehends what the aging curve says about him. He can still have an entirely productive career through the duration of that contract, but that productivity isn't going to look like it did when he was 39 or in 41, which was actually his peak season. He's already showing those cracks. We've talked about the loss and the passing numbers. He used to be one of the sport's top three passers. He is not that anymore. Uh, I've talked about how Rodney Childers is going to have to change the way that he calls races to maximize the driver Harvick is now versus the one he was four years ago. That's a reality. That's going to have to happen. And as Harvick goes deeper into his decline phase, we're going to see more things like that where the team is going to have to compensate. That's not to say Stuart Haas can't. That's a hell of a program over in Canapolis. They have the smart minds that can be able to do that, and keeping Harvick around uh, just for his mind can motivate them to do that, but there's no guarantee it happens. So there is considerable risk here. The risk, though, is on Stuart Haas Racing, not on Kevin Harvick.
0: I think, you know, in, in explaining this is that when we talk about production and age, it's all relative to To the driver himself, not not everyone else. And what I mean by that, I I think of Jimmy Johnson. And aging Jimmy Johnson is still a damn good driver, but he's not the same version of himself as he was, whether it be age 36 or 39. But age 42, 43, Jimmy Johnson is still much better than driver X at age 39. So when we're talking about production, we're comparing it to the driver at different ages. So as David was saying, Kevin Harvick at 46... Is a, maybe a much better producer out there on the track than up and coming driver, again, driver X at their, at their peak, whatever it may be at age 39. I mean, Kevin Harvick is above average driver. And as you said, David, he will decline above average, not like your typical 46 or 48 year old, but they're like any other sport. We have to accept that there is a decline, right? With, with age and performance. I mean, again, I always go back to. If this were baseball and suddenly a 100-mile-per-hour thrower was down to 90 or 85, you would say, yeah, that makes sense. You know, he's older now. To not apply that to racing is crazy. So you, you have to have that same logic if you're applying it across the world of sports and just performance in general.
1: Sure. I agree with that. And that pitcher that's losing velocity on his fastball doesn't mean that he's forgotten how to throw a fastball. He probably can coach it very well and articulate it just as well. But the power isn't there because the body is not built to withstand that. And for race car drivers, this is kind of the nexus point. He's in it. And he's going to experience it. He's going to want to do things on the racetrack that he's physically not capable of doing. And he might know how to do it. He might even have more insight five years down the road than he does right now, but he's not going to be able to execute on what he's learned.
0: I think you and I have brought this up before. Like, why why still do this? We see drivers, you know, mid-40s, early 40s, retiring it, but if there's one thing that will bring you back, David, you've brought this up multiple times, it's the speed of a race car. <laughs> he's got one of the fastest car, if not the fastest car, sure. in the sport. You, yeah, don't why walk, you don't walk away from that. Why would he? Yeah. And I mean, how how rare is
1: it? Like, I mean, you 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 compete at local levels of racing for your entire life to to get to the point where he's at right now to be. In the car that is perennially the fastest in the sport, that you you don't walk away from that, Alan. I mean, you you just you don't. I mean, it it kind of, if if Jimmy Johnson's car was still fast, if Hendrick Motorsports was still in its heyday, would he be retiring? If he was competitive, would he be retiring? If he had a realistic shot to win his eighth, ninth, and tenth championships, I don't think so, because that's the kind of competitor. Uh, that he is and that these drivers are that's kind of the drive that brought them to this point in life uh, so no I think that that's what helps dictate this decision for Kevin Harvick is that he's got the best car in the series and I don't think he wants to turn it over to anybody else might as well keep it and see how far he can go with it
0: in the next few years we're going to have a brand new race car we expect some lineup changes over at Stuart Haas what how do how does Stuart Haas racing benefit from signing Kevin Harvick for this long through all those transitions?
1: Because even though Harvick might not be the performer Stuart Haas needs him to be, they at least will have access to his brain and his insights into car design in their next era and the next era of NASCAR with this Gen 7. This is huge. If you noticed, Hendrick Motorsports was dominant. And then Jeff Gordon walked out the door and the organization's collective speed hasn't ever been the same. I've had a few folks within the industry point to that specific moment and tell me that Gordon's car intelligence and his feedback from being in the car on a regular basis was invaluable. And then one day, all of it was gone. There is something to be said about that. This is something that would be in Stuart Haas' best interest to not repeat. The number four team has been that fastest car for five of the last six years. Second in the outlier season, it's probably a good idea to keep all the minds behind that in house. You know, it, it, it hasn't been mentioned, but I would I would think Rodney Childers is probably going to stay put or be incentivized to stay put. And secondly. I know that there's a free agent market that is deep, and Stuart Haas would make a good home for any of Kyle Larson and Eric Jones and Brad Keselowski and Ryan Blaney, and Stuart Haas can control how good it appears. It cannot control the motivations of any of these free agent drivers. There is no guarantee that any of them will sign regardless of what's being offered. Alan, if you came to me right now, if you offered me a free mansion on its own island, I would absolutely hesitate in giving you an answer because that's how much I hate packing up a house's <laughs> worth of stuff and hiring movers. I hate it. And I'm, I'm getting mad at the idea right now. But so, so, so having Harvick long term is a hedge on the ability to attract a new driver because that is never
0: in your control it's smart of Stuart haas to recognize all of this good stuff and we know kevin harvick will be around for years to come giving us plenty to talk about here on positive regression next up is the race preview for this weekend and guess what this week's race preview is sponsored by monkey if you're listening to positive regression there's a good chance you're interested in playing daily fantasy sports and if that's the case MonkeyKnifefight.com is the daily fantasy site for you. It's the fastest-growing daily fantasy website on the planet, and for good reason. Listen to this. Unlike other sites, you're playing against the house. That's right. No sharks, no confusing interface, no need to learn how to code in order to have a chance at winning. All you need is knowledge. And I know Positive Regression listeners are smart because you're listening to us. (laughs) This weekend, specifically, there are games for basketball, hockey, and yes, NASCAR, and Monkey Knife Fight is doing something cool for the listeners of Positive Regression. If you sign up for a new account using the promo code POSREGPOD, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D, you'll receive a 100% match bonus up to $50. Again, just use that promo code POSREGPOD at monkeyknifefight.com. State and age restrictions apply. See, f- see the site for full terms and restrictions. David, that's going into our Las Vegas preview. And something we always do when looking at in the track going forward are those restarts. Uh, I don't know if you want to use that cliche that this is the start, the real start of the season or the regular season. But look, we're back at a mile and a half racetrack. Restarts matter. Stages matter. All that stuff. How are you looking at restarts for Las Vegas? This
1: is this is the start of the season where we begin to learn a lot of things. In the first Cup Series race last year, the retention difference of the front row was 100% on the outside to 33% on the inside. The thought is, Alan, that this track sees cars spread out. I'm sure we'll see cars optimized for long runs because of this. Working those long runs and getting the car better as the race progresses will be key. Of course, cautions are always unexpected. Don't treat caution trends as gospel, but this should be a race heavy on long runs. So this might be a
0: scenario in which restarts uh, only matter a little bit. Good to hear. Uh that will be important for the Penske drivers, who, if you remember last year, went one and two in this race with Joey Logano getting the win. Brad Keslowski finishing second in the spring race at Las Vegas. Uh even last year in the fall, Keslowski third, Blaney fifth, Logano ninth, all three Penske cars in the top ten at Vegas. But David, as we know, here in twenty twenty, there's been a little bit of a shakeup. Uh I won't even call it a, a team or a crew chief switch. it really is more of a, a, a driver team switch, if you will. Joey Logano kind of taking his uh, number and fire suit and colors over to Paul Wolf's team, if you will. That's how we can look at this. Brad Keselowski going over to Jeremy Bullens. And then there's Ryan Blaney going over to Todd Gordon. So we know they can have success at Las Vegas. It's hard to go year to year like that. Can this crew chief switch, Can can the Penske drivers succeed with these new crew chiefs at Las Vegas?
1: That's a good question. So so the Penske guys, four wins in the last eight Las Vegas races. In the last two, fall 2018 with Brad Keselowski, spring 2019 with Joey Logano, the Penske cars were fastest relative to the field in the fourth quarter of the race. That's what we talked about when we discussed the strengths of Penske's crew chiefs, the ability to get faster as races progressed. It takes... More than a modicum of communication and execution to do that. And since the crew chief shakeup occurred, one can assume the drivers are still learning their new surroundings. Uh, Ryan Blaney was telling me this in Daytona. He said that learning Todd Gordon's terminology, his, his vernacular, it's another language he's learning to speak. And that's good that he recognizes that. So so we know that there is probably, you know, we we need to kind of build a cushion for him at the beginning of the season, but that's not something that stokes optimism for an immediate return. I'm sure that they can be competitive, but it might be the normal brand of Penske speed, firmly top ten, bordering on top five. And for me, where concern lies is that ability to get faster. As the race progresses, I think that strength developed from having long tenured driver crew chief pairings that have that that advantage is gone. Um, so I'm I'm curious as to how that affects uh, all three uh, Penske proper drivers uh, in this specific race.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's fair to go apples to apples, but a lot of people are going to do that. I mean, they're going to be like, look, Joey Logano won this race last year. Brad Kislowski finished second. You shake things up, how are they going to do this weekend? Uh, and that's clearly jumping too far to conclusions, but that is what people are going to do as trying to, uh, make an early decision or, or an early grade, if you will, as if this worked or not. Yeah. I mean, that's,
1: if you blow up the continuity, uh, well, what do you have? I mean, there, is, there is nothing to fall back on. There are, there are no notes. They're looking at new notes. They're making notes yeah. and that's what this race is going to be. So yeah, I, I, of course you, you go into this race weekend and you're thinking, okay, the Penske guys, you're thinking Kevin Harvick, you're thinking Martin Truex, right? Like that's kind of the, uh, inevitable foursome if we're not counting Ryan Blaney there. But I'm not so sure that that is what it is, uh, especially given how those recent races were won. They just they just made their car faster to a point where no one could touch it in the fourth quarters of those races. That's a tough thing to duplicate. I've, we've seen a lot of guys struggle. We saw Kyle Busch win a championship in a playoffs in which he and Adam Stevens struggled doing that. So that's not a given. Um, and if you take that strength away, I'm not sure what they have.
0: All right. Well, let, let's say they are some of those favor, the, the four that you mentioned, uh, you know, if they would be the odds on favor to, to look at, at least in terms of victory on Sunday or performing well, at least uh, who else should we be looking at? Dave, this is a very David Smith term. We're not going to call them sleepers. We're going to call them contrarian contenders this year because there are there's other drivers in the field that we should be looking at. David, kudos to you. You picked Ryan Newman last week to, as your contrarian contender to be, uh, the winner of the Daytona 500 and damn near, you know, a couple hundred yards away from, uh, being correct. So let's look to Vegas now that we're at this point in the season. Who, who is your contrarian contender for Las Vegas?
1: I'm going to choose Matt DiBenedetto. Ooh. Um, and it's, it's kind of falls within the Penske purview here, but Paul Menard's car ranked inside the top 20 in last year's spring race at Las Vegas, 18th. To be exact. And I think it's fair to assume that Matt De Benedetto can better adapt to a baseline Penske setup. Let's remember this 21 team is a Penske team with an independent Twitter account. That's about <laughs> as much as I can say it, right? Like that's pretty much it. De Benedetto now has a rocket at his disposal. And he was a slightly above-par passer last year on the moderate intermediates. That's good. Alan, you drafted his crew chief, Greg Irwin, in last week's crew chief draft. And the thought process here is that Irwin won't call the exact race he would call for Paul Menard, but in the instance, he's mining for positions on green flag pit cycles and there could be a lot of them for a 400 mile race. Remember, that's, that's the thought going into this race. De Benedetto isn't likely to lose them. So this, this might be not be a scenario where he can pop up and get a win, but I don't think this is a sleeper. I think this is a legitimate contender for a top
0: five spot that maybe we're not giving enough credence to. Good stuff. I like, uh, John Wood on Twitter likes to say, whenever they perform well, it's a Penske car. And then when they, whenever the 21 isn't running so well, all of a sudden it's a Wood Brothers car. So (laughs) I think he's made some sort of iteration of that joke before. It just makes me laugh. That's, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, good, good pick, Matt DiBenedetto. Um, my pick, not as in depth. I apologize or, or as specific, but if we're, you know, contrarian, I don't think we're, we're looking at the Hendrick cars enough um certainly Alex Bowman had a ton of speed on tracks like this last year I mean remember he won at Chicago Chase Elliott has won at Kansas before uh they they improved from the spring race to the fall race last year at uh the, the Hendrick cars I'm talking about Chase Elliott was 5th last year in the fall Alex Bowman 6th William Byron 7th so not as specific as yours David but uh, you know while we assume that the Gibbs cars certainly Martin Truex Jr the Penske cars should be on top given everything we know about twenty nineteen and, and how not much has changed going into twenty twenty. I think really uh the Hendrick cars uh should be looked at in terms of uh competing for the win on on Sunday because I, I think that the incremental progress is there and I think it carries over to twenty twenty.
1: Which of the four do you like better? For this weekend.
0: I'm gonna go Chase Elliott. I don't know why, but, you know, I think he's the the, the, the best one on that team right now, and I, I expect big things from him. Again, uh, I don't have quite the analysis that my coworker here, David Smith, has, but I apologize, <laughs> but I, I just think, uh, I think they're gonna come out of the gate, uh, well, so.
1: Okay, I look forward to seeing that. Yeah,
0: so uh, as as these go on, I'll have better in-depth insight into these, our contrarian contenders, because one other thing we have to tackle right now is what do we want to learn this year at each of these races? What do we want to learn? And that's part of my reason for having, not maybe not as in-depth of an answer as you for our contrarian contender, but that's what I want to learn, David. I want to learn who's going to show up this year, because Joe Gibbs Racing uh, dominated last year. Not much has changed. Look, the rules package didn't change. If anything, they've, they've made it harder to innovate new parts, and the number of cars is limited uh, for each team. So they've made it even harder for teams to catch up and close that gap. Can anyone do it? I think Hendrick made steps last year during the playoff in the second half of the season. The 48 certainly got better. Again, Alex Bowman had speed at times. You would expect uh, William Byron and Chad Knauss to have another year of growth and Chase Elliott and Alan Gustafson to only get better. But what do I want to learn this weekend? I want to learn if any of that is true to see if any of what I'm talking about has any sense of uh, correctness or if I'm just talking out my rear end. That's what I want to learn, David.
1: No, no, I, I and and I would I would like to learn that too. I was uh, talking with some uh, some team folks this weekend. And I, was, I was trying to get an an estimation on if the season didn't play out as expected or desired. At what point does all the research teams are doing, everything they're doing to focus on this year's car? When do they stop and pivot towards 2021? Because that's a new car and that's going to take a lot of focus. The thought process is that it's probably going to be about mid-August, where the, the playoff picture is fairly concrete. That's when you'll see teams that are plainly out of playoff contention pivot. But the good news is that we're going to see teams really go hard at it for... A good six months. Um, so, so the likelihood of improvement is a little bit better than I thought. Uh, we might see some teams make strides. As I mentioned last week during the crew chief draft episode, there are a lot of new crew chiefs. There's a lot of movement in that regard. So there's also new ideas in the cup series, and that's exciting to see. But for me specifically, what I want to learn this weekend, I'm looking forward to getting a better idea of the extent of, of Toyota's support for Levine Family Racing with uh, with rookie Christopher Bell and Gaunt Brothers Racing with Daniel Suarez. Uh, they are likely two different forms of support, but we don't know how either will actually manifest on the racetrack. Contrary to popular opinion, the LFR car is not a fifth Joe Gibbs car. That's certainly not the case for the Gaunt Brothers 96, it's not treated that way if everyone I've talked to has been honest with me, but that LFR car ranked 24th in central speed in the Las Vegas spring race last year. I'm curious as to whether that bar gets cleared this weekend. And if it's, if it's a top 10 car, we might need to up our uh, belief that Christopher Bell is a legitimate playoff contender. Um, because I think that would be the case.
0: Good stuff. We shall learn a lot. We are available on Apple podcasts, Google play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean and Luminary. We're available no matter your device. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. That kind of stuff really does help. If you're out there on Twitter or Reddit, please help us in spreading the word because, uh, you're smarter for listening to us. I can promise you that it makes us, it makes us all better race fans and, uh, spread that word uh, to your friends because it'll just help the community as a whole. We notice everything you tell us and it's so appreciated. If you have any questions, we want to answer them right on this podcast. We do it plenty. Reach out to us on Twitter at POSREGPOD, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. Again, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. We had some of you chiming in during the uh, Daytona 500 about uh, stuff you'd heard on the pods. It was really awesome. So, uh, David, I know you're always working hard. You just got back home to the Charlotte area, so what are you working on this week?
1: This week for The Athletic, I'm writing about Matt DiBenedetto, what we might see from him now that he does have a fast race car. I talked to him about this in Daytona, and I'm going to couple his words with my analysis. Also, I'm looking into top Cup Series prospects in the Xfinity Series and how uh and how the paths look for them heading into the cup series because that's the goal right uh, so it's good to have a prospect discourse now on the athletic for that reason and on motorsportsanalytics.com all february subscription revenue is being donated to stop out bullying so if you'd like to access the numbers that we've been discussing on this very podcast uh if you do it this month that money will go to a great cause. So please get on that. Good stuff. Good
0: stuff. Uh, If you're listening to this on Thursday morning, first of all, thank you. That means you are a subscriber. That means you should watch Race Hub tonight because I sit down and talk with Noah Gregson. He joins me on the new segment, The A-List. And uh, always affable, fun guy, uh, coming right off the Daytona win. Uh, which you know I listened to as a fan uh, from the stands and just hearing him on the radio, just a lot of uh, maturity and, and leadership and planning that went into that win. Just hearing him on the radio, uh, a lot of progress uh, from from that young driver. So congrats to him on that win. But that'll be on Race Hub. Uh, and then we'll be out in Las Vegas, second truck series race of the year already Friday night, and then keep it pegged on FS1 and Fox throughout the entire weekend. Got some good stuff, especially on Saturday on Race Hub, their uh, special edition of Race Hub, all about brothers, and I've got an essay about the Bush brothers. So it'll be a, a fun weekend of content, and I'll watch my Twitter feed at Alan Cabana if you miss any of it. David, it's good to be back. It's going to be talking about racing. It's uh it's good to have something to talk about. I'm glad we're we are back here racing again here in 2020. Thank you all for listening to Positive Regression. Another fun episode. Make sure you come back and join us next week. Enjoy the weekend of racing. Stay positive, everybody. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. Have a great one.